Hi, everyone. Welcome to the November 19th, 2021 edition of, of Colorado Inside Out. I'm your host, Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you so much for joining us. Let's get right to the show. After observing the trajectory of rising coronavirus cases, officials from a variety of metro area public health departments are requesting Governor Polis issue a statewide mask mandate. In addition to indoor mask requirements for anyone over the age of two years, the officials are advising the enforcement of vaccination requirements before entering public spaces. Patty Cahoon from Westward, if, if not mask mandates, which we've seen Governor Polis shy away from, at least in, uh, for the last several months, do you think we'll see anything else? And also acknowledging that we're taping this at 12.15 on Friday, he may announce something at 1 o'clock, but from what we expect so far, do you think there's anything else left for him to do if not a mask mandate? Well, let's see. He's told you you will basically kill your grandparents if you aren't vaccinated and you get together at Thanksgiving. He has told you to lie if you happen to live in a non-vax, um, a non-vaxer household and just get your vaccination anyway. He has gone as far as he can possibly go without actually saying get a mask mandate. I mean, he's made it very clear that vaccinations are the best way to get out of this, but also that you should have to be careful. We have them, and we now have in six counties starting December 1st, if you're going to an indoor event with 500 people who, who are seated, you have to have that mask on. You have to be vaccinated. It's not going to be good enough to have a negative test. I think we'll see that ratcheted down. You'll see more counties adopting it, and you'll see it maybe going down to 50 people in an inside venue. But I don't see him going all the way on a mask mandate yet. Now, of course, he is having a press conference at one o'clock today, which is now his habit to just irritate us. And I know the people at that press conference, it's not Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts or some of the people he'll have. These are his health experts. So there will definitely be, I think, some dire warnings when you look at what's going on with the hospitals in Colorado. David Copel from the Independence Institute and DU Law School. We talked a lot about local control versus state control on the show. Do you think some counties, seeing that the a statewide mandate won't happen, do you think some counties will take the step to say, well, then we'll just do it ourselves? Well, sure, and Boulder County did that weeks ago, um, and that seems to fit with the, the sensibilities of, of the people of Boulder. Jefferson County, uh, their public health department is considering the same kind of thing. And I think that that is the right approach rather than uh, centralized top-down. You may remember back on this program back in March 2020, I strongly encouraged people to wear masks, and that was at a time when Dr. Fauci, who always tells the truth, was telling people that masks were useless, and the World Health Organization, a subsidiary of the Chinese Communist Party, was also telling people not to wear masks, and I said you should. And I think that is still true, although the the evidence we now have, a year and a half later, is they can be of, of marginal benefit in terms of overall community rates. If you do wear a mask, I strongly encourage you, wear one that actually works. This is a KN95 mask. You couldn't get them in March 2020 because the Chinese communists had bought bought them all up uh, uh, as they were deliberately releasing the pandemic in the world by sending infected travelers all over the globe. But the key thing is this metal thing here allows you to make the mask fit tightly over your nose. If you don't have, if your mask doesn't have that, then there's a lot of air coming in around both sides of your nose and you've drastically lost most of the benefit of the mask. Trish Zornio was on this show last week and she talked about, and she has a scientific background. In her view, one of the benefits of the mandate was not the reducing disease, uh, but she, she pointed 
particularly to the social message that it signals that, oh, this is an important issue. I think that's absolutely wrong. I credit her honesty. Uh, but it's a violation of the First Amendment and of, of natural rights to force people to dress in a certain way, especially covering their own face, uh, to be forced to transmit a government message. David, there's a, a lot there to unpack between uh, a, a lot of different accusations, but also, in, in fairness, Trish isn't here to resp respond right. to that. I think there's a lot of folks who have talked about how there 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 is a, uh, a a common decency kind of a thing. If I'm going to sneeze into my arm and not just sneeze out loud, that there's still something valuable there. It's not necessarily mandating a fashion choice. Well, sneezing into your arm is a good thing to do. I encourage everyone to do it <laughs> as necessary because that actually reduces how many viruses or bacteria you expel. And uh, I'm sure she would, t we, she would talk about the scientific benefits of mandates, but she added on top of that what she saw as the social benefit. And I, th that, that's fine for her point of view. My point of view is that it's wrong for government to force people uh, to dress in a particular way to express a, a message. Let's keep it going. Eric Sonderman, a columnist with the Denver Gazette, a Colorado Politics, also a longtime political analyst. Uh, Eric, Governor Polis is in a sticky situation here. When he was uh, using emergency powers in 2020, I think people at least appreciated the clarity of what's going on. Now it's much more hands-off, and he's looking towards a re-election campaign that didn't look as murky as it might look right now. Is he going to be forced into taking more of a stance? Well, I think he's a little bit damned if he does, damned if he doesn't. This is very much a different Jared Polis than what we saw earlier in the pandemic. He is less assertive. Uh, he has not yet uh, declared a state of emergency, which he can do with the stroke of a pen that would give him those powers that he wielded uh, before. One can't help but believe that if this was November of 2020 instead of November of 2021, in other words, he was 24 months away from a re-election instead of 12, that we might have a mask mandate now that uh, some other policies might be in place. All that said, and as tempting as it is to be critical of uh, Governor Polis, and I have been on this issue of late, there is a logic to his fundamental point, which is that compliance is the issue. And the people who are overwhelmingly going to comply with any mask order are the ones who are already vaccinated, who, where compliance is least important. And where compliance is going to be a problem is in those who are also resisting the vaccine. The hospital rates are very, very scary. To be clear, not every hospital bed occupied by a COVID patient, but the overwhelming share of them are, are occupied by either an unvaccinated COVID patient or an elderly COVID patient with other underlying conditions or someone who's immunocompromised. That's where the risk is. Those of us around this table who are vaccinated, knock on wood, our risk of ending up in a hospital on a ventilator, they're not zero, but they are very, uh, but they're very, very low. Finally, since David went after Trish Zornio, who's not here to defend herself, I will say something nice about Trish Zornio. I was sorry not to be on the program with her last week. Thought she did a fine job. Uh, she is at least in previous columns raised the very tough issue. If we ever get to that point, do we need to ration hospital beds based on did you otherwise protect yourself? Mm -hmm. I'm not sure I'm ready to go down that route because it leads to other bad places. But credit to Trish for using her column to be provocative and at least raise a very difficult issue, which is going to increasingly get talked about.
And joining us for his premiere on Colorado Inside Out, Scott Martinez, attorney in Denver, uh, partner with Martinez and Partners Law. Scott, it's great to have you here. A uh, lot of angles on this one, from Governor Polis to what the state government should be doing or not be doing, even local governments. What are your, what are your thoughts? Well, Governor Polis is in a tricky situation right now. This is, has to be one of the hardest things he's had to deal with as governor, and all eyes are on him, not just in Colorado, but across the country. Colorado's been a leader in uh, not just mandates, but in how they respond to this public health crisis. If I were in his general counsel's office, I would talk a little bit about how right now is different than the time that he initially put in a mask mandate for two reasons. First, you've talked about it already. He has not declared an emergency, and his emergency powers are limited when it comes to an actual mandate. Second, the initial mandate happened prior to having a vaccine. And so the treatment of people who uh, had to wear the mask at the time was equal, regardless of your status, um, your health status, who you are, where you come from, your age. It applied to everyone. If you were to put in a mask mandate today, we'd be talking about two different classes of people. We'd be talking about those who are vaccinated and those who are unvaccinated. And those vaccinated people would be treated differently, having to have extra precautions for the reckless behavior of those people who are not vaccinated right now. Clearly, we'll be talking about for a while. Let's keep going. This week, the city of Aurora reached a settlement with Elijah McLean's family totaling $15 million. The settlement is the largest in Colorado history and even ranks high among other states in the nation. David, I'm making the assumption that if uh, a city settles for a certain amount of money, that they have done the calculation that if a lawsuit or trial were able to, lawsuit were able to move forward, it would actually cost them more resources, whether it's, that's all hard dollars or not. Uh, is that a fair assumption in this case? It's, I think you're right that that's typically how things are calculated. This is, as, as the question says, it's a very high settlement even compared to police misconduct cases. Nationally, it, it could be that Aurora said, well, this is actually fair because this is different from the typical police misconduct case. Most cases involve an officer who made a split-second decision that later, in, in hindsight, turned out to be a, a mistake. You know, maybe the, the family called the police to the house because there was someone in the house threatening them with a knife. The officer shot someone with a knife, and they said, oh, maybe he didn't really need to. This was different. It was against someone who was not doing anything wrong at all. Uh, it persisted over a period of time. It wasn't a split-second decision. It persisted while the victim was incapacitated unable to do anything and completely under control and so not in any way a threat to anyone. It was had multiple officers involved at the beginning and then the problems were compounded by mistakes made by the EMTs following up and then following that there is now what the Aurora Police Department said was an investigation but in retrospect looks to have been a cover-up uh, with the complicity of the command level of the department. So given that <laughs> huge amount of malfeasance over months, ultimately, uh, it's, not, it's no surprise there was a very high uh, settlement offer. As it turns out, it was reported last night, the $15 million from Aurora was, has been on the table since July. And the reason we haven't had an announcement of things was because uh, the victim's mother and father and their respective lawyers have been having a very acrimonious fight about the division uh, of the money. Eric, what do you think about this call for the city of Aurora? Was it the right move? They had to make that calculation. 
Uh, clearly, it speaks to the magnitude of the injustice, uh, that it was worth $15 million, and either they decided that that was the appropriate settlement or they decided that their exposure in court was such that it might be that number or it might even be more. So it speaks to the magnitude of the settlement. Uh, this got national news. This is not just a local news story. Uh, unfortunately, in civil court, money is all you have to right a wrong. Now, yes, there are still criminal proceedings uh, against some of the officers in question. Um, but in civil court, uh, you know, you don't bring back somebody from the dead. Money is all you have uh, to right such an injustice. And lastly, I would just note that you know, were it not for George Floyd and were it not for a whole lot of other national situations, we might not be talking about Elijah McClain because they might have succeeded in sweeping this thing under the rug or keeping it hush-hush. It was only in, the con in a much broader national context that this came to light and this gross injustice was exposed. Scott, you have a lot of professional experience when it comes to settlements and how this was handled. What do you think of how Aurora handled this case? Well, you have to understand that this is uh, two different parts of Aurora. We have the city council and then we have the police department. So this was a political and legal decision by the city council. The police department is, sits off to the side and probably wasn't involved in the actual dollar amount at the end of the day. What is more interesting for the Aurora Police Department is uh, the recognition that they are they were under investigation by the Attorney General's office and Phil Weiser uh, to see if there was a pattern and practice of civil rights abuses. That ability for the Attorney General to investigate a police department came about directly because of Elijah McClain. Uh, in the wake of that uh, terrible incident, the legislature passed a law giving the Attorney General the ability to look into these matters. And when the Attorney General looked in, he said, not only has there been uh, abuses in terms of excessive force from the police department, a pattern of practice of uh, uh, racial discrimination when it comes to targeting of uh, persons of color, uh, but that there is this notion that cops are investigating cops in Aurora when, it, when there are abuses. In other counties and cities, there's an independent monitor. Um, and one of the important things that, I came, that came out of the Attorney General's investigation is that there must be an independent monitor, monitor for the city of Aurora. I'm looking forward to greater transparency and accountability for the police department, and I think that that is a win when we have such a tragic loss. Patty, your thoughts on what we saw a significant national headline coming out of Aurora? Well, Eric's right that people did not pay much attention to this when it happened originally, and we covered it, and it just did not get a lot of traction. And it wasn't until George Floyd's death that people really started paying attention to what had happened to Elijah McClain. And the more you looked into it, the worse it got, because it was not just that this 23-year-old black kid was walking home, dancing, wearing a mask. It looked weird, but there was nothing. Even the 911 call that was made about it said he looked weird, but it wasn't anything that looked dangerous or threatening. And how the police responded and then how the, the investigation was done by the police, by the DA, that basically wiped everything, said there was no problem that November, so just two or three months later, uh, was outrageous. Mike Coffin, when he was elected, said he'd look into it. 
slowly Aurora did make changes. Vanessa Wilson came in. They've been working on it. And this settlement deal was made. At least Aurora recognized they were never going to win this case. They might as well pay and pay a lot. It's $11 million less than I think the George Floyd settlement was, but it is still a lot. They made that decision before um, Weiser came through and said, we're going to be looking at this, Aurora Police Department. Here's what we've found that's wrong. So that's good. Aurora bit the bullet. But as uh, David said, the family was fighting, but who knows how a family is going to respond in something like this. Glad the settlement's done. Now let's see what can be done to really get Aurora police working again. Monday afternoon, a gunman opened fire in Nome Park near Aurora Central High School, leaving six students injured. School resource officers joined the Aurora police in providing emergency care for the victims. In the wake of the shooting, conversations around teen gun violence and the use of school security officers have increased in urgency. Uh, Eric, we're back to Aurora. Uh, fortunately, I guess at this stage of the game, you see a, um, uh, a tragic uh, uh, episode of gun violence here that the six, six teenagers in question survived, two of them with significant um, recoveries ahead. Um, what is Aurora facing moving forward and this whole idea of what school resource officers could have very well saved a life because they were able to react so quickly from Aurora Central? Yeah, let me try to be quick. I think we've been wordy around the table. Uh, I think the way you phrased the question is right. We're back to Aurora. Uh, years, years ago on this show, you could go weeks, months at a time with that. It was all Denver-centric. Now, so much of the conversation is about Aurora. Aurora is really becoming one of the epicenters of this metro area, as we've discussed. Uh, what a sad incident. Uh, I don't know that we're yet to the bottom of it. Uh, as to school resource officers, yes, I understand there's some problems with school resource officers in some schools in terms of maybe criminalizing some kids who don't deserve to be criminalized. That said, you'll miss them when they're gone. And if you do any kind of public survey of whether we should have school resource officers, I got to believe the results are overwhelming in the affirmative. Scott, are the, the right folks involved in conversations around these issues in Aurora? Well, I, I think that the Colorado is known for uh, marijuana. We're known for skiing. Unfortunately, we are now known for mass shootings. Since Columbine in 1999, um, we've been having the same conversation about why are these happening. Uh, so I, I am troubled. I am saddened by uh, another mass shooting, and hopefully that brings more people to the table, and I think that that's what you're asking. Uh, as they're having those conversations, I think we shouldn't just say that we've done enough, that, we, that there is more that we can do in Colorado and should, um, should demand more, whether that's liability for gun manufacturers, that we need uh, tougher laws when it comes to uh, gun sales and training, um, but enough is enough. Patty, Eric brought up the point. Uh, Aurora seems to be the epicenter for a lot of issues right now. Do you think we'll see some of their policies setting uh, trends like we saw maybe 10, 20 years ago from other cities like Denver setting trends? Well, we've seen they've already adopted what we have, the independent monitor. I, don't, I think Aurora is just right now reacting very, very quickly to the problems they have. Let's not forget, they had the Aurora Theater shooting there, too, so this is not new to them. Um, when we, I was talking about parents, and you don't know how you'll deal with things, look at Tom Mauser, whose son, Daniel, died in Columbine, who has been campaigning for over 20 years now for responsible handling of guns. He talked to us this week in the wake of this shooting, and also that news about how the NRA was had secret discussions the day after Columbine on how they were going to play it. We have to have serious discussions in the legislatures about this. 
David, there are a lot of different uh, angles to this. Uh, what Do you feel that there's going to be some productive conversations, actual progress on any of the myriad issues involved? Um, no. Uh, but happily, Aurora has kept its school resource officers, and, the, and they helped uh, save lives by providing emergency care. And this does show, to Eric's point, why school resource officers are often very important. One of them at Arapahoe High School in, in 2013 stopped a mass shooter, and, and who knows how many lives were saved there. The, the sad thing is the Denver Police Department, Denver uh, Public Schools directors, under their uh, defund the police uh, theory, uh, kicked all the, the SROs out of Denver Public Schools and made things worse off. But certainly there will be continued attempts to scapegoat law-abiding gun owners uh, for the acts of criminals, like we saw in the legislature. After the King Super shooting, the legislature passed something that says cities can ban concealed carry in wide areas. Well, concealed carry licensees are the most law-abiding population in the state of Colorado. And so you crack down on them because uh, you want to do some symbolic persecution because uh, you, you can't get at, at the, uh, the perpetrators. Uh, as Eric mentioned, we've been a little bit chatty today, so we're going to go to our uh, favorite part of the show, Disgrace of the Week. As always, Ms. Calhoun, please start us off. Any night you can bring up Mike Lindell is a good night. You might not sleep well on one of his pillows, but the fact that he is now taking the side of Tina Peters and the other people who were uh, subject to a search by the FBI because of issues still involved with the election uh, elections in Mesa County and what's going on with Tina Peters, incredible saga that just keeps going. David. The folks who only get their news from things like One American News or Newsmax believe this kind of stuff by Mike Lindell and folks like that. And many people think, well, I'm so superior to them because I didn't believe this Trump election hoax. Uh, and, and good for them for not believing that. But if you your understanding of things like the Kyle Rittenhouse case is based on the information you got from MSNBC and CNN and their ilk, you are equally as misinformed and just as much a willing dupe uh, of professional liars. Eric. So many possibilities this week, Dominic. Let me go back to our governor. I don't think we've gotten to the bottom of this yet, but the papers I write for Colorado Politics and the Gazettes, the Gazette papers have broken a story about what looks to be a very dubious sweetheart contract of $85,000 to his interim and former chief of staff, who also happened to be formerly the chair of the state Democratic Party, Rick Palacio, related to COVID management and COVID relief. It looks like self-dealing. It looks like bad judgment of self-dealing on Palacio's part, bad judgment on the governor's part. Um, I don't want to say the wheels are fully coming off the Polis administration. That would be a gross exaggeration. But there are certainly some question marks that he's brought into play over the last few weeks, including the ta his own tax issue. Um, he's providing a lot of ammunition that could be used against him next year. Scott. I'd pile on on Tina Peters, the Mesa County clerk, who uh, fed into the conspiracies and fed into the lies about uh, the underpinnings of our democracy. Shame on her. Time to see something nice about somebody. Patty? We could talk a long time about Kathy Reynolds, the first female city council person in Denver. The Chambers was just named after her on Monday night. She was feisty. She was never afraid to take a stand. She was smart. She really cared about this city. She liked this show. 
that was maybe the only bad judgment she displayed. <laughs> so she was really a wonderful role model, and it's great that she is remembered that way. David. The government of the United Kingdom has announced that it will be banning the domestic operations of Hamas within the United Kingdom because it's a terrorist organization. Right move and long overdue. Eric. Uh, here, here to Patty's uh, shout out uh, to city council naming their major room, their chambers, for Kathy Reynolds. Hello, Rick Reynolds, who I know is a, a regular viewer uh, of this program. Uh, let me go elsewhere. Um, the University of Austin is a new venture in the higher ed world formed by a lot of scholars who are tired of so much of what goes on in the name of higher ed, the wokeness, the lack of freedom of speech, of free expression, etc. I could go on. I won't. We'll see if the University of Austin gets off the ground. The, the head of it is somebody who left St. John's College in Annapolis, Maryland and Santa Fe, New Mexico to form this. Uh, there are plenty of challenges ahead, but what an interesting counterpoint to so much of the, the nonsense we've seen. Scott. I'd like to say thank you to the, all of the redistricting commission members and the judges who oversaw the cases. Uh, we had very little controversy, maps that were upheld on a unanimous basis. Well, I think there's a lot to be improved in the process. The people who went and had the dozens of hearings across the state should be commended and thanked for their work. Well, I want to get in on the action with a couple points here. First of all, you know it is that special time of year, uh, Thanksgiving next week. Uh, we will not be doing our regular show, but uh, we will be uh, having a very special night of programming. So we kicked off. If you've missed it, we we've, we've have our uh, big season of both Generation Grit and both sides of the story uh, every Friday at 7 and 7.30. The third place matches begin on the 26th, so be sure to check that out, 7.30. The third place matches all the way up to our championship on December 17th, really some top-notch debates from some of the best debaters in the high school debaters in the in the state of Colorado. Uh, secondly, because it's Thanksgiving, we air one of our special Time Machine shows, and we thought with a lot of the special guests on it, and it was one of our Emmy-winning episodes, we're bringing back the 1973 Time Machine show, the extended cut, which includes uh, special interviews with Rebecca Love Corliss, Nita Gonzalez, and former Governor Richard Lamb. So I think it'll be a great time to revisit that. And related to that, those Time Machine shows that we've done a whole, a whole lot of them over the years were made possible by our uh, producer who is uh, our producer of Time Machine shows and usually our audio engineer, Larry Patchett. And as he likes to say, Larry has found a little house in the prairie for Larry. He'll be uh, moving to uh, uh, parts a little bit far away to make the commute to be a part of this show every week. But he has been part of this program for 24 years. We'll be starting our 30th season in January, so you can do the math. He's been here for most of the time uh, for episodes, uh, always in the audio booth, but always a creative force for our, our big moments. Uh, it's been, uh, he, he will not be a stranger. We'll see him from time to time. But, again, the, the commute from Julesburg is a little far for every week. So, Larry, thank you for everything you've done for us, for being an integral part of our team, and best of luck for your new little house in the prairie for Larry. For everybody here at Colorado Inside Out and PBS 12, I'm Don. Hope you all have a wonderful Thanksgiving and thanks for watching. Good night.